President Biden nominates another ATF director, and Defense Distributed's Cody Wilson reacts to the ghost gun kit thing. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski, also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can pick up a membership today if you want to get exclusive access to dozens, probably hundreds now, of of articles that you can't get anywhere else, including firearms analysis and original reporting uh, that we have for our members only, in addition to what we have available free to everyone, uh, including some of our recent reporting on Uh, President Biden's new rule going after ghost gun kits that was just finalized this week. And because we like to have people who can speak to the actual issues at hand on this show, uh, we've got Cody Wilson uh, of Defense Distributed with us to talk a little bit about this rule because it directly affects him and his company. Cody, can you talk a little bit, uh, just explain uh, a little bit about yourself to people who might not know you? Sure. Cody Wilson, Director of Defense Distributed, and we operate Ghost Gunner um, and other related websites that help people get CNC machines, 80% receivers, and these so-called ghost gun kits. And obviously you were a pioneer in the 3D printed gun space, uh, designer of the Liberator. Was yeah, the yeah. first, um, you know, the, one of the, the very first uh, 3D printed guns or guns made of almost entirely of 3D printed components, right? So you have a lot of experience here. And you're somebody directly affected by this. So the rule came out on Monday. Um, you've read it, uh, I know. And what can we just start off with what you think is the most impactful thing in there? It's, you know, it's 300 pages, 346 pages. What did you take away? Probably the biggest single defeat in the rule from the ATS point of view. It was there, you know, they re- retreated from this attempt to expand the definition of receiver to cover multiple potential components on a gun. And they recognized that that was ruinous and like a disaster. And so they've said, fine, from now on, pretty much every gun, even in the future, will only have one component that we think is the receiver. And we agree that the statutory definition probably means only one component. And so their final final rule treats every component that's regulated on a, on a firearm as one. In the case of handguns, it's frames. In the case of rifles and shotguns, it's receivers. I think that's the most interesting thing because it is it is a, a fallback from their ambitions of the rule from a year ago. Maybe, maybe people don't understand just how ambitious that was, not just because there's regulatory duplication, but because I think a rule like that would have actually been a way of, of regulating 3D printed gun innovations and other types of non-commercial and commercial gun innovations. And so we don't live in that timeline. So that's probably the biggest piece of good news. And maybe the second piece of good news is that 80% receivers, at least for rifles, as I can see from the rule, uh, will continue to exist. Yeah, I mean, and in fact, in the rule, especially in the comment responses that the ATF published, they actually go out of their way to say that, uh, for instance, the AR-15s lower, uh, the 80% that are commonly available for that firearm are still not firearms, they're still not receivers, still not uh, regulated under the ATF. Uh, It's really only when they're combined with uh, a jig in a kit that then elevates them to the status of a regulated firearm. Is that think, your understanding, right? I think that's the flavor of of the reg, but let's not give them too much credit because they still say, though, in the example of the AR-15 receiver, fine, you can pretty much expect that that's not a receiver under the, under the new rules. They still say they've revoked everybody's determination letters from the last, let's say, right. 10 or 15 years. They want everyone to resubmit. And they want you to resubmit with your marketing and other things. So it it almost certainly means some 80% receivers are out, some are still in, and probably it, it gives you no clear guidance on what future 80% receivers can look like. So they they uh, classic ATF, they want it both ways. Yeah, that, that is interesting. They do certainly say that people will have to resubmit if you were selling a, a kit uh, with with alongside the... 80% lower. So what and not just what do you expect remember, to come of that? They consider, because readily, the definition of readily is probably the, the third most interesting part of this rule. They, they finally get to institutionalize a new application of readily convertible um, to not just apply to uh, kits and receivers, but also to include things like processes and actions. And, and so even they can include marketing now in the definition of readily convertible. So it, it isn't 
necessarily true that a, a rifle receiver uh, sold with a kit is is considered a firearm. It may be in some cases a some kind of rifle receiver, a partially complete receiver, sold with the right instructions, may be deemed a firearm by the ATF as well. I think that's very weak and and is probably the basis by by which our lawsuit may proceed with the Second Amendment Foundation. And so I should mention. Mm-hmm. We won't just, you know, we're not just on this podcast to say, well, ATF, they did it again. Lots of people are going to sue here and uh, and try to try to block out some of this stuff. Yeah, let's talk about that for a little bit. What uh, What's going on with the lawsuit? Obviously, you're not going to be the only ones challenging, but I'm interested to hear, and I'm sure the audience is interested to hear more about what you guys are doing in particular. Sure. I, I don't want to pretend to be like the tip of the spear on this. I know GOA is planning a really big one. And uh, I know JSD will be a plaintiff in a, in a lawsuit. And so a lot, of, a lot of people are working on it. Obviously, FBC, I think, will get involved. But, you know, what if it may seem that some of this, uh, these groups are slow to action. But the, the problem here is that we didn't, we didn't know what to expect from the final rule. And so the, the draft litigation has to now um, be adapted to the final text of the rule. And, and to, to be done in a considered way, like this will take some weeks to, you know, to adapt these drafts to the final text. So... Uh, I expect our litigation to be some weeks out, and I think it'll be the same way with GOA. But that's kind of okay. ATF gave everybody like 120 days, which is quite generous if you think about it. That's on the long side for APA regs. So we've we've got a lot of time to put things together. And I think there's still aspects of the rule which are underappreciated. Footnotes which have gone unexamined, adoption of standards from court decisions and things that ATF has kind of snuck in here to where even on the surface, like in our podcast here today, if we say, well, one or two of these things like aren't that bad and it could be worse, there might still be some really bad poisonous things in here, which we haven't yet really understood. What, uh, what is it, I guess, in broad strokes that you're think is, is most egregious in this rule to the point where you're following the suit over it? Well, I don't want to, I don't want to overstate. There, there may be multiple plaintiffs, let's say in, in my litigation. Mm-hmm. So I can tell you, I can speak from direct experience. I can tell you what I don't like about the rule, but I don't yeah. want to characterize the litigation, let's say. Um, sure. You know, there's a lot of stuff in the in the 180s in the rule that I don't like, where ATF talks about structuring uh, transactions, and they say like, um, fine, 80 percent will continue, and, and jigs and other components will continue, but if you sell to the same customer in the same universe or something, somehow you've sold them a firearm across time. I don't like that. I don't think that's um, that's not very compelling to me, and is uh, a torturous kind of stretch of the definition of a firearm. You know, uh, multiple components over time to one customer. You sold them a firearm. I don't like that. I think that's worth fighting. Uh, and then, of course, there's these these noxious threats about uh, regulating CAD and CAM files, which is completely outside of the scope of the, of the GCA and the, and the NFA. And ATF still feels the need to put some comment in there that, well, we could get people on conspiracy if they give people files for 3D printed guns. You know, uh, politely, fuck yourself. <laughs> um, and and so I think it's the first uh, time someone has cursed on the podcast. Like usually, <laughs> we're always doing. Uh, it's deserved. See, they, they're policy. pretending that there's all this good faith in here. This is not a good faith rule. We know why this rule was pushed. It was it was pushed to regulate the legal private manufacture of farms, which is and remains legal in this country. And so they want to put a cloud over the activity, pretend that it affects public safety when it does not. It is almost an infinitely zero part of the of the public safety problem currently in america uh, and then they want to give the president credit for solving gun prime or you know any, any type of gun control when he doesn't have the political power to otherwise do so well uh you know obviously uh the atf put in there some statistics about recovered firearms they claim that i believe it's been a tenfold increase in recovering unserialized firearms although i don't that they don't break down uh, the difference between Exactly. Uh, exactly. Privately made guns and guns that have had their serial numbers scrapped, it, scratched off. But of pages, they spent hundreds of pages talking about PMFs, privately made firearms, and then do not mm-hmm. disclose the actual t- statistics of so-called PMFs. They just mentioned firearms without serial numbers. We know the vast majority of firearms without serial numbers have been firearms which uh, have had their serial numbers removed or destroyed, which is already itself a federal crime. Crime guns exist in their own parallel universe to, to legal guns in this world and circulate for years. So this is a, an attempt at conflation. And even they understand that statistically the, the problem is irrelevant at the moment. And they even say in the rule, well, we don't even need it to be relevant to act uh, because we're sovereign. Well, fine. Then why did you go to the effort? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, certainly it's still even with those numbers not being broken out, it remains a relatively small percentage of overall crime guns, clearly. But. But you, do you discount the idea that there have been more privately made um, guns showing up in, in crimes uh, as, no, the, as they claimed? Or? I don't. Of course, more is always a relative term, more compared to what, mm-hmm. more compared to zero. Like certain, five years ago, no one was making polymer 80s. I agree. Now polymer 80s have become 
you know, quite a quite a problem uh, for certain gang task forces and other places, you know, in law enforcement, mm -hmm. a, a target, no doubt. But uh, this rule is meant clearly from the top down to affect the polymer 80 kit uh, more than anything else. Right. You know, if you if you had a question about what was banned in this rule the other day, well, it's the thing the president held up. <laughs> if it's yeah. anything, <laughs> it's the polymer yeah. 80 kit. So the we know buy, what is it? Buy, buy, buy builds. Uh, what do they call it? Yeah, there's yeah, a buy build shoot kit. That's, yeah, that was out a year ago. But even even so, they they want to regulate not just whole firearm kits or what they call complete weapons kits. They want to regulate receiver kits, and that's what you were talking about. So they're clearly mm -hmm. saying, fine, if you're going to sell an eighty, maybe. But if you include almost anything else with it, uh, we might call that a receiver kit, which itself is now considered a firearm under the GCA. Again, I don't right. like it, and uh, I think it's worth fighting. So in your view, it's not, you know, you you don't view it as a legitimate attempt to reduce gun crime in the United States, uh, you think it's more of an attempt to control private manufacturer firearms by regular Americans? Yeah, I think it's an attempt to put a ceiling in on uh, on so-called private manufacturers and the ex what, what was clearly going to be like the explosion of that activity. Uh, the kits were becoming very popular, 3D printing is becoming very popular. And in a kind of irony here, if you're going to ban receiver kits or partially complete receivers, what you're actually incentivizing that market to do now is actually figure out how to complete the readily convertible components from raw material. So you're actually you're kind of teaching people or incentivizing people to learn even more about how to make a gun, which probably will create a larger black market. In, in right. Which you, you guys have actually already uh, figured out to a certain extent with the zero percent project that you uh, have with the ghost gunner, right? I, I think we've got a good start with so-called 0% receivers. I was preparing for a rule which would say, even, you know, all 80% receivers are done. And, you know, I was thinking, well, the only way forward then is 3D printing and 0%. It seems mm -hmm. that that's not completely the case. Although now we can see how this action is proceeding, let's say, at the state level in a harder direction. Because many states, like New York, for example, just in something like 10 or 12 days, will ban so-called unfinished receivers in a way that this rule did not. Uh, and so like in New York, Maryland, these other states now, the only place you can, the only way you can keep going is with 3D printers or, or so-called 0% receivers. So we'll continue to teach people how to do that with rifles. I think we have a cool pistol concept and, and I think other people will kind of uh, imitate that uh, in the years to come. Yeah, certainly uh, there's a lot more action going on at the state level where they're actually passing legislation. Clearly here the administration is is bound to some degree at least by the fact that this is an executive action and or federal rulemaking via an ex executive action that's yeah. not, uh, you know, they're trying to reinterpret the Gun Control Act from, you know, the 1960s uh, instead of passing new legislation. So they can't quite go to the lengths that some of these state uh, governments have gone to. And it's, it's interesting because even in this rule, they do explicitly say that they're not going to uh, regulate raw materials, uh, whether it's metal or uh, polymer, you know, strips for, for 3D printers. Um, yeah. So you get, a, you get a couple things in there in that regard. And, and clearly the action happening at the state level is more aggressive than what this has ended up being. But even still, obviously, you, you know, you're not happy with it clearly. And I think they, there are a number of statements in there that, that do, I mean, they're alluding to you and personally, frankly. Yeah. In the NPRMs, they mention some of our websites and, and like in the regulatory impact analysis, which will get almost no press coverage at all, you know, outside of us discussing it, they say like, well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe ten to fourteen million dollars of lost revenue. I mean, they don't analyze how it affects our, our wider industry, how it affects people's uh, lost jobs and the decline of manufacture. I mean, I, I think, it, especially just knowing Central Texas and other places just around our ecosystem, there's tons of shops and FFLs and otherwise legal businesses that make a lot of money and extra money on making gun parts and receiver kits mm -hmm. and and helping people you know, customize that stuff. And th there's a, a huge swath of activity, which is, I, I think, still going to be wiped out by the rule, even with how, you know, watered down it may appear to be. Uh, and this just isn't done in a serious way. It wasn't really done with the, the involvement of industry at all. They met with major stakeholders like prime manufacturers, I think, like one month before they revealed the, the NPRM, the, the first draft of the NPRM. It's just not mm -hmm. a serious process. It's just an attempt to torture the definition of firearm in, in the GCA. And, and pretend there's a public safety merit to it. Yeah, it's interesting. They uh, changed their tune a bit in terms of uh, industry impact or impact on small businesses, right? I feel like it, if I remember correctly, initially they were saying that there wouldn't be any impact. Because <laughs> yeah. People could just stop selling uh, the, the yeah. kits together and sell separately or whatever. But now they, after the comment period, 
which frankly they did they changed a number of things after this coming period right the some of the stuff you alluded to but one of them was now they're saying yeah it's going to have some impact some businesses are going to go under because of this and it's but obviously they don't really specify who or or how but think about how out of their minds they were if if they were going to let the final rules say oh there'd be no there'd be no a zero impact and we'll give you 60 days to comply. Right, right. You know, it's like, okay, you're going to get sued and you're going to lose. So they, they knew they had to change their tune because they're going to have, you know, five to 10 major pieces of litigation about this now. And, and like this rule is not safe for that reason. So they, they recognize, I think, especially with multi-part receiver, that was going to blow that rule up. Um, mm. and, and think about probably the main reason they've allowed 80% receivers to survive is because that's, it's not just how the ghost, the so-called ghost gun industry uh, is performed it's it's literally a necessary part of how the major major rifles and pistol companies make their product in this country you buy you buy these um parts and process from your vendors who themselves are not licensed you know there's a whole ecosystem of like i'm buying blanks in uh, from my subcontractor or i'm importing them from a foreign country on you know like there's there's just such a web of interconnected right. components and modern manufacture re requires so many different levels and processes of let's say partially complete components receivers or not, you know, like the ATF was monkeying around with things that like it was going to get wiped out on and probably still is. And, but they knew they had to fall back. Yeah, I know. Certainly I think people have, people might have an idea that the, uh, you know, when Smith and Wesson makes a gun, everything, they're just bringing in molten steel to, to forge themselves and then make the entire right. gun through the, and it's like, that's not how, that's not how it works, especially with, like a lot of ARs, right? There, every there's five thousand companies that make ARs or whatever. That's not yeah. the real number, but you get my point. And really, there's only I think three or four uh, OEMs that actually make the, of course. the uh, the parts for that stuff. And a lot of people just put their roll mark on it. This whole game got started this way. When I look at the lawsuits against Polymer Eighty last year, you know the the determination letters originally given by ATF, let's say like in the '70s and stuff, to some of these manufacturers were to people who were just designing what they thought was an economical manufacturing process for legitimate, you know, ARs and other guns. They just wanted to know, okay, at what stage of manufacture is it incomplete? So I can have my subcontractor make a bunch of forgings and stuff so that like I can actually get my process to a, an affordable place. I mean, this is just political economy. It's just very basic political economy. And so, okay, once ATF makes these decisions, like there's a reliance interest here. And so, okay, there's a, there's a whole interstate network now of like of manufacturers and contractors making AR 15 forged, castings you know of non-receivers okay eventually other people will figure out how to turn those forged castings you know those those forged receivers into complete guns so you can't you can't just erase the history of how this is all done and of course you can't erase the history of small-scale digital manufacturing and gunsmithing so they i don't know they're in a corner they're being told by their boss that they have to stop this activity but they they almost don't have a way to do it outside of a law from congress saying all right fine nobody without a license can make a gun anymore right yeah yeah, I mean, certainly, obviously, the ATF is under a lot of political pressure with with this uh, from the Biden administration. In fact, to the point where they even moved up the publication date several months uh, early uh, due to added pressure from the gun control groups, uh, which this was something of win for them, getting it moved up and getting a, a new ATF director nominee yeah. uh, pushed through or put, you know nominated. He hasn't been confirmed, obviously. Right, but, right. But, um, you know, it, it strikes me, though, that when I read this rule, what, what I see, you know, all the attention is on the ghost gun stuff. And it makes a lot of sense for you, obviously, because you're uh, somebody who's, who's making, um, you know, unfinished parts and, and selling, uh, you know, mills and, and so forth. And this is a big focus of you, both business wise and philosophically sort of political approach that you have. But when I read that rule, what I, what I really see the ATF doing is... Uh, Changing the definition of firearm because they got in trouble with it, the current definition or the previous oh. definition yeah. uh, in court because it was a very bad definition, frankly, uh, that I think the ATF has some uh, certainly some reasonable complaints about how that definition was originally written back in the, the 60s uh, or whenever it was initially adopted uh, for what a receiver is because it had to include, uh, you know, both both the, the breech block and the. Um, and the fire control group, and obviously most guns, there isn't one part that has all of the required components from that definition. So they've kind of just been operating in spite of that for 60 years, just 
um, ignoring what the actual official definition was. Uh, and then they started eventually having problems with this in yeah. court, getting cases thrown out uh, against, you know, basically felons in possession of uh, AR-15 lowers. They couldn't convict them because the AR-15 lower doesn't fit the definition of a receiver as it was written in the federal rules. And so what I see is them trying to fix that problem and doing it. They, they stripped out all of the snark. But if you go back and read the leaked draft that uh, we published at the reload about a year ago, it was really very dripping with sarcasm and scorn at these judges who had given yeah. out their cases um, just because the, they were basically ignoring the, the, de the previous definition. And now they're like, well, fine, if you want us to define it, we're just going to go with this extremely broad definition and we're just going to use the same determinations that we used to. Uh, like, for instance, the AR-15, right, is a great example of this. The new, the new definition says we're going to pick uh, the, the enclosure for the, the, the bolts, basically, on a rifle. Uh, well, the enclosure for the bolt on an AR-15 is the upper receiver, mm -hmm. <laughs> but the regulated part is the lower receiver. And they said, well, we're going to make exceptions, basically, for what, what, how things already are. Uh, and then like future designs, you will go by this this new rule. Uh, but it's just to, to essentially so they can continue to prosecute people for for, uh, you know, the felon in possession or something along those lines so that they're because their old definition was bad. Like and then this this ghost gun stuff is kind of a political sideshow to me, yeah. Uh, for what's going on here, I think I think that's right. Yeah, and you're right that in that first draft of the rule, it's clear like the uh, the highest priority probably is to unify the definition of receiver so that they can continue, you know, running the show and act acting like they've always known what's going on. But the whole flavor of the rule, even now, is something that like, well, see, we were always right, and it's just about justifying their kind of regulatory inertia. Yeah, and that extends now to the AR-15 receiver where. Okay, and they're, when they're talking about the comments in, in support of the rule from, let's say, Brady and all these people who support the rule, you know, obviously those people want them to go further and make some kind of mm -hmm. uh, sensible definition of, of when something's a receiver or not. And they're like, nope, nope, actually our previous guidance is still good. And the AR-15 lower receiver is not a receiver until there's a pocket mill. So they, they just want everybody to respect how they've done everything. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, they basically they didn't like what the judges said. They don't necessarily like what the industry is saying and they don't really like what the gun control groups are saying completely either. They want what they want, uh, which, you know, that's government agency for, I mean, that's just human nature generally, but certainly sure. government agencies just want to be able to do what they want to do. And that's kind of the core of this whole rule is like the, I mean, and, and that does play in, I think somewhat to the ghost kind of kid situation because the ATF certainly doesn't like that no. concept either. No. Uh, they don't like the idea that you could buy a polymer 80 kit and make it, you know, in 30 minutes or whatever. And it's, and it's not as hard as it used to be to make um, a more advanced uh, semi-automatic firearm these days at home. Uh, you know, it was always possible, obviously. The tradition of fire gun making is goes back to before the founding in this country. And people have been making their own firearms for personal use forever. Uh, it's just now with your work and, and you know, the work of uh, other people in the industry, it's become much more accessible for the average person. Uh, yeah, I, think, don't, I don't think they really liked it, frankly. You know, I, I was told, I don't know how true this is, I was told that another primary objective of the rule was to try to get a handle on 3D printed guns. And apparently it, be, it began in that place or it, mm. it began with what you were saying, a, a way to make a definition receiver, which got them out of trouble with the courts in California and other places. But I think they realized pretty quickly in the process that they, they couldn't get a handle on the 3D printed thing because you're kind of making a component from almost nothing, essentially. Right. So um, they, they had to settle with this idea of redefining PMFs and creating the, the gunsmith FFL category and at least saying, fine, when these guns do show up somewhere with someone who's regulated, you know, they have to they have to be marked. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting to where they went with PMFs, right? Because I think um, and look, to be fair to the ATF, too. Uh, it's difficult to to draw these lines as to when something becomes a regulated firearm part or you know finished firearm for regulatory purposes because yeah i mean especially with something like um re readily convertible right we talked about about this when they first announced the rule but like 
they they had a footnote in there about how eight you know case law showed that in when at least when in context of machine guns if somebody had an eight eight hours in a machine shop and they could take the product from you know unfinished to finished that could be readily convertible well on an ar-15 uh or on a lot of smaller guns that that's like you're gone from bare metal especially with modern technology like well like your ghost gunner for example obviously um and and it's just like where are you drawing this line and and you got to consider all kinds of stuff like you were talking about earlier like like in how the industry actually works in practice uh which is very different from you know our political debates over what gun laws should be um and so it's not easy necessarily to come up with these lines it's a, regulating things it's a lot like trying to hold smoke in that you're just never going to be able to get there 100 percent. and so they're they're i'm sure doing the best they can although obviously they are open to plenty of criticism on sort of the arbitrary nature of some of the decisions that they make including in this rule but one thing that i wanted to to get at here too is you know, the, the way that they talk about PMFs, privately made firearms in here, it's what they call them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of more expansive in terms of what people can do with them than I've ever heard the ATF talk about before. Uh, in, in the in the idea that you can not only make them legally yourself at home, and not that, that's, that, that that is a controversial thing given what federal law is, but you can make them and then you can also sell them uh, from what it sounds like. Uh, I mean, that seems to be why they came up with this entire process of requiring FFLs to serialize any uh, privately made firearms that come into their inventory because they're, they're saying clearly like you can make and sell guns as long as you're not doing it uh, to the point where you're in the business because that's, when you have to get a license uh, to do yeah. so. And I, it was interesting to see them talk about it that way. Cause usually they try to leave that in the business uh, definition fairly vague. Uh, so I, I'm interested in your reaction to that whole section on privately made firearms. Yeah, I think you're right. This is, this is kind of two things. It's an admission of the future, you know, for many years, I guess I could say, I mean, we invented 3d print, 3d printed guns here in Austin. And that was considered some pretty wild stuff. And I watched for years, everyone was just trying to ban it or pretend it wasn't happening. And this is ATF in a way saying, fine, 3D printed guns and other types of guns will be with us forever now. So how do we kind of write that into uh, the, the world of guns and the, and the industry? Very interesting. And they admit here, it's not just FFLs and stuff, but like, you know, like people are going to build an FGC-9, let's say, and take it to a pawn shop when they need some money. And, you know, so this is ATF admitting that there's going to be this whole other kind of currency and swirling economy of, of weird hybrid 3D printed guns in the future. Kind of fun to see that in the rule. I think that's interesting. The other thing is, you know, I do think they get a lot of pressure from media and activist Democrats about like, oh, hey, you should control this. And this is kind of their way of narratorizing you know, the fact that like, look, we enforce the GCA and right. people can make guns. Just a reminder, people can still make guns in this country. So, you know, you need to handle that if that's something that you want to do. But that's not something. That we yeah, they do. They do kind of talk about that a lot in the rule, especially responding to the gun control groups where they're like, look, this is the goal of this rule is to interpret <laughs> and implement the GCA. We can't do things beyond what it says. So, yeah, it's legal to make your own firearms. And look, uh, you know, like I said, it's become more accessible to make reliable modern firearms at home but firearm making uh you you know you can go to the, you can go to the uh the yeah. hardware store and buy some pipe and make a slam shotgun pretty damn easily it's not sophisticated and it'll yeah. work um so you know it's not necessarily a new thing or wasn't completely inaccessible to regular people before oh, that's it's right. just it's, but that's right. obviously what you've done and other people in the industry has made it more accessible. And I guess that's where the whole controversy comes in, right? The whole, the whole thing. Um, and so, you know, I wonder about your, um, your reaction to, to how things have come in, in the few short years since you first made the Liberator. Things have come a ways. I, I think Paul Moretti has the most share of the credit, let's say for changing both the industry in favor of, let's say privately made firearms. Uh, because they became a very successful company and really showcased maximum efficiency and marketability of, of the concept. 
Um, and Polymerate, of course, has many imitators. 80% Arms did a good job too. And there's a number of companies who for almost 20 years have been shipping some type of 80% either forged or billet AR type receivers. So that, that activity just kind of had this upswell. It's of course complemented by 3D printed guns. I just, I don't really know that 3D printed guns kicked it off. Although Lauren of Polymerate would tell you that they were inspired, I think by that moment. So a lot of people got into the 80% space once they kind of were turned on to the idea that you could make guns with digital techniques and stuff. So there's clearly like a, a bunch of factors all swirling around at the same time. I just think, um, I think the 3D conversation is still somewhat outside of this rule. And it's just interesting to me or curious to me that, that the rule seems to also admit that 3D printed guns is outside of it. And even in a few places where it feels pressure to respond to, uh, to gun control groups, it says, look, anybody can just buy a 3D printer and make a receiver. I, it's wild to me to see the ATF put that in, in official rulemaking because, you know, that was something we were saying a few years ago and feeling like nobody was nobody was understanding. So uh, I don't know. The wheel of time. Yeah, it is fascinating um, to see the the speed with which this has been more uh, mainstreamed, really. I mean, that's, you know, obviously not everyone's making guns in their basement or whatever, but but uh, certainly there are far more people are doing it now and doing it publicly and talking about it than ever before. Um, and, and in large part due to your efforts, certainly. Um, and, and, and then of course it's, as it's grown in, in its presence in the country, it's grown in uh, its controversy as well. That's, that's what's led to this rule, right? Is there are a lot of people out there who, I uh, don't think people should be able to make, uh, at the very least, unserialized firearms because the concern there certainly is um, that if a gun shows up in a crime and doesn't have a serial number, then that hinders the investigation because the ATF can't trace it back to uh, the point of last sale. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they worry about criminals using this. Uh, and, uh, you know, so and you obviously uh, have had been the center of a lot of that controversy with your both your lawsuits with the uh the criminal situation history situation that we spoke about on the last podcast and you know i wonder where things are are headed with this that how are we ever going to get to a point where there's sort of a, a an understanding among both sides that we can that there's some sort of um balance that can be struck where people uh aren't aren't uh, escalating the the political fight over this, or is it just something that's always going to be controversial? I think the word, the key word in your question is escalation. And unfortunately, um, if, if you haven't been paying attention to the audience, uh, we're in a cold civil war in this country. Okay. It's not, it's not Russia versus Ukraine, but it's something similar. And, uh, no, I don't think there's going to be a de-escalation. Um, and if anything, consequent to this rule being published, the, bulk of guns showing up at crime scenes, let's say ghost guns showing up at crime scenes, will be 3D printed Glock type guns. Uh, hmm. 3D printing is going to actually, I think, have its moment now in that context because there's a huge there's a huge gap now if with the extinction of Polymer 80. Let's assume that the rule goes through and Polymer 80 doesn't succeed. People are going to continue to make Glocks uh, and, and receivers for Glocks on 3D printers and use these home machine or otherwise commercially available rods and stuff, to, or not rods, but the locking blocks, you know, to hold the slides. So we're going to actually have the nightmare scenario from 10 years ago that people talked about. And when every crime gun shows up as a, uh, you know, 3D printed gun, they're just going to, the, the progressives are going to shriek about it even more and try to demand that no one should have the right to, to make a gun anymore. So if in a, in a sense, they're setting themselves up for an even bigger fight, and I, I think, I guess they think they can win. Uh, so I, it's probably important now to go ahead and set up all the lawsuits and everything for it to try to establish a right to not just keep and bear arms, but to make them. Hmm. Certainly. Uh, and then, I mean, I guess uh, the question there is what, uh, if you're foreseeing a future where you're going to see more of these uh, homemade guns or more homemade guns in, uh, you know, at crime scenes in criminals' uh, possession, what, like what do you think that's an inevitable result of, uh, you know, I guess the freedom to make your own firearms in this way or the freedom of information, well, or is there some way to combat that that isn't just banning all homemade firearms? Uh, maybe the current ATF rule is an example of that. Like I, when you say, well, more of these show up at crime scenes, maybe we'll see a statistical, I don't know, pause or plateau mm -hmm. um, in the accumulation of, of privately made firearms because the Polymer 80 kit was a very successful I guess affordable kit 
affordable to some degree. A lot of people mm-hmm. were, were buying that, that kit and, and they were moving a ton of them. Um, so will just as many people 3D print Glocks? I'm not saying that, but I am saying when you find Glocks with no serial numbers now, they'll probably be 3D printed. So it, it re-characterizes the debate. So maybe yeah. it'll still take a few years, but but what, what do you think is going to happen next? It'll be, there's an industry pressure now to build and ship the cheapest, uh, smallest 3D printer package just for making receivers for Glocks and rifles, for example. Mm. So, I mean, I haven't commercialized that yet, but someone's going to. And, you know, maybe it'll be me, but hell, I can only handle like four or five lawsuits at a time. So, right. Uh, <laughs> it'll be somebody. Yeah, but I, I guess, uh, well, what, well, actually, I'm interested here in, in your thoughts on Polymer 80. I mean, uh, do you think there's no way, if, if this rule goes through in its current form and, uh, you know, legal challenges don't strike it, you know, down or parts of it, uh, do you think that a company like Polymer 80 isn't going to be able to continue under these rules? Oh, I think very clearly under these rules, Palmer 80 can continue with their with their unserialized kids. I, I, there has been some indication in the last year that they right. intend to continue making serialized and legitimate firearms hmm. and maybe even serialized kits, if that makes sense. I suppose there's some segment of the market which might be drawn to serialized kits, but I, I guarantee you it's a much smaller not, yeah. of the market. I mean, you just go buy an actual... Just a regular gun. That, you're at like, that point, right? you're buying a Glock with extra steps. <laughs> but I was just thinking they could just sell the the eighty percent. They may, and, I, and someone will, like JSD. Yeah. Well, someone will, but and then someone actually, else sells the the jigs. I guess. I think a concealed part of this rule, though, is like it is not clear to me that eighty percent handgun frames have survived. Hmm. Uh, if anything, there's a new standard. I think they included some definition of um, clearly identifiable as a firearm as I guess a layman standard for like, hey, that already looks like a Glock receiver, therefore it is a Glock receiver. <laughs> hmm. But I, you know, we haven't seen that confirmed. This is why the AR-15 admission, for example, was like uh, startling to me in the rule. It didn't feel right. like to me they even needed to say that, but clearly they felt they had to. So maybe we'll see more yeah. on the board, but I, I think- Yeah, that we, is interesting. You're right. They only specifically said that the AR-15s Eighty percent lower isn't a firearm. They haven't necessarily yeah. specifically said what polymer eighty sells as as an unfinished frame is an unfinished frame in their yeah. opinion. So I guess that will be played out in court for sure. Probably it's, it's probably worth hitting some of the footnotes in these areas where it's discussed. But you know they kind of glide around that new definition of frame, and a, a mm-hmm. lot of companies like mine are only thinking about receiver in a general sense. And that's not what's happened here. There's now new species of frames and receivers, including for silencers. Now silencers have frames. Yeah. Although I felt like the silencer thing is actually, um, that's another area where I would imagine that uh, gun owners and gun rights advocates would actually be happier because it's the goal of it is to reduce how, how uh, onerous the process of like repairing or, or modifying a a silencer or suppressor is. Uh, I, I can feel there's a, a benefit yeah. to the current construction I, and, and they explain, they try to go out of the way to say, hey, we're doing you a favor here. But, you know, I don't yeah. like the idea that receiver or uh, silencers can have frames. I don't think the statute is sure. built that way. Um, they're just kind of, again, a lot of this. Like, go ahead. They've traditionally treated it as uh, any part of a silencer or suppressor is legally a silencer or suppressor. And you yeah. have to go through all the paperwork if Which you want to, like, replace a, even a wipe. Yeah, uh, which is like a little seal that you rubber seals that people put into. Uh, uh, that's crazy, you know, and, and people in the 3D printed space, for example, they're finding it's just so difficult to even test and modify their designs that people overseas are having to help them do that because of just how difficult the silencer regs are. So, OK, yeah. my, you know, maybe that's an improvement. But again, like the way we got there is still probably illegal. Um, hmm. And I, I think know. they're still exceeding their authority, authority with that. Always, always with these agencies, you know, and permanent government and all that stuff. So, okay, maybe the rule we got again is better than the rule that we thought we were getting, but I think it's still worth fighting about. It's still worth suing. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're like, hey, resubmit. I, I have an opinion letter, by the way, from 2016 on, on certain 80% receivers. Yeah. And uh, nope, gonna sue, dude. Not gonna resubmit. Okay? okay, I won't swear again on your show, but you know, I think you know my answer <laughs> okay. is a swear word. A show for adults, it's, um, it's okay. It's just usually, uh, you know, People don't get to the level of swearing about, uh, you know, because we're always talking about policy and uh, minute details and stuff. But, but, uh, but I mean, look, it's policy matters, details matter. So I get it. Uh, You know, it's the matter. It's the difference between jail time and and a thriving business, right? You know, it's so. 
it's so arrogant of them to say that, okay, the inclusion of marketing materials might affect whether something is or isn't a firearm. The statute does not mean that. That is not the spirit of the law. And, you know, I've spent 10 years fighting about the First Amendment in this context of the space. To me, this has a clear First Amendment problem where it's like, mm-hmm. well, what you say about the thing may affect what it is. Okay, well, that's a content-based restriction, and it's illegal under the Constitution of the United States. It just offends me. And um, these permanent creatures installed, you know, completely immune from challenges and the downstream effects of their depredations on us. Uh, it just offends me. And I think, you know, there's no way to make them feel um, fear or pain in the face of like what they do to us. So um, why should I compliment them on going easy with the boot on my neck? They are enemies of the people, enemies of the Constitution, and they better hope that the Cold War doesn't go hot, baby. That's all I'll say. Hmm. Well, uh, I mean, that's certainly uh, that's certainly some very uh, heated <laughs> rhetoric there, man. How's that for you, but, buddy? Uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, obviously, um, uh, it, it's a difficult situation. Certainly, I don't, I don't, I imagine you're not calling for violence here, correct? I oh, I'm just, I'm just saying. I hope they they should hope that inflation doesn't run out of control. They should they should hope that we maintain a polite civilization together where we're all willing to read their stupid 400 page regulations and they should hope that we don't proceed to a state where we're no longer interested in their 400 page regulations hmm, i see well um certainly i i think that uh there's going to be a big legal fight at the very least over all of this as you've mentioned i hope that it doesn't uh, devolve into anything worse than no, that. No, we, we won't be so lucky, Stephen. It won't devolve into anything else because we're not that uh, lucky. <laughs> well, um, either way, um, I think that uh, I, I was hope I want to get a little bit of your thoughts on the the new ATF director. And I know that you you know maybe you don't have a lot of information about his background. He was the uh, just for listeners. Uh, we're going to talk about this. Uh, I'm going to talk about it with Jake on the. The news update in a minute, but he's a former prosecutor uh, from Ohio. He ran for attorney general as a Democrat in Ohio and lost in 2018. He's, you know, he holds the position of wanting universal background checks and assault weapons ban. Um, but now he's been nominated for ATF. And I just wanted to get your view of uh, of, of how you think that's going to go or, or what, what you would expect if he does make it through. Well, you know, I suppose it all depends on what Joe Manchin thinks about him, right? So mm-hmm. Chipman had these these clear problems where he was he was a little too strident, an advocate for gun control, and obviously his previous tenure at Giffords or wherever he was, I think, disqualified him in a moderate sense from running the agency. And probably this Dettelbach guy doesn't suffer from any of that since he's been essentially like a stealth a stealth Democrat. He can at least, you know, pose as some kind of blue dog from a swing state or something. So they've calibrated, I guess, their nomination well. And I think you have to dig a little bit to find out that this guy actually has modern anti-gun sentiments. I know at least that he believes in assault weapons bans. I suppose the most relevant thing about him from the out looking in, fully admitting I don't know anything about him, is that as a prosecutor, if he is a former U.S. attorney or whatever his career was, he would then, I think, lend to the ATF uh, in, a, in a formal directorship, a certain prosecutorial flavor or tone. And so we should expect a more aggressive ATF. And I suppose that's the signal then from Biden to, to the gun controllers that, OK, mm-hmm. he'll choose someone here who's more moderate in a sense, in a, in a left-right sense, but someone who at least knows how to prosecute and enforce his and the gun control group's priorities. So I suppose he said he sent the exact message he needed to here. OK, so you, you're concerned that if he gets in because of his background as a prosecutor for 20 plus years that he's going to take a more, and obviously the, the gun control positions he holds, that he'll take a more aggressive stance towards regulating the industry. Uh, is that, that's basically where you're coming down on him? Probably. I mean, we should only take the symbolic signals that are given to us. And so Biden is pairing his nomination with this guy with the revealing of the final rule. Yeah. And he's saying that, well, at least he'll prosecute people outside of the official industry because perhaps what they're selling should be considered firearms. And so he's, he's basically saying, you know, it's an enforcement priority of mine that people not privately make firearms or help people uh, ship firearms in the mail, these kinds of things. So I just have to take the two things together and, and interpret them to be, um, you know, Biden saying he's serious. He's sending the signals that he can to the right people and saying, fine, this is probably all the gun control I can get done. Of course, you know, his, his approval rating is sinking. 
the midterm elections are coming. Democrats will likely lose their congressional majority. And so, okay, he's, he's saying this is the best gun control I could do. So therefore, the candidate, no matter what, represents, you know, this control. No, that, that does make a lot of sense in terms of the message that the president's trying to send there. I mean, it seems, I obviously, if you, uh, if you watched his press conference, he was very adamant about the idea that um, if you, uh, I think he had a line that if you order a couch and you have to assemble it when you get it, it's still a couch. And so he takes the same view of firearms as well. Um, and <laughs> that's so, a question yeah. of law, though. You see, that's a question of law. Show me, sure. show me a federal statute which defines couches, and then we'll see. Right, but clearly his message is basically what you just outlined there, that yeah. he's going to come after people like you who are, uh, you know, trying to uh, build, or build firearms at home yourself or help others do the same thing. Yeah. And, and look, we're going to do it. If you have the right to keep firearms, you have the right to make them. You have the right to learn about making them. This activity, this process will not be interfered with. It doesn't matter to me how much of a you know storm that they want to blow up and you know dissuade people from doing it. It's illegal. It's an intimidation of people and their civil liberties. And so we will we will fight. All right. Well, hey, we appreciate you coming on and sharing your perspective and giving us some insight into what's going down with this rule and how it's going to affect the people who it's targeted at. Um, and, uh, yeah, we'll hope to have you on again soon. My pleasure, Mr. Godowski. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the news update. Uh, how are you doing today, Steve? I'm doing all right. Uh, how about you? I'm doing great. Uh, You've been busy a, this week? Very busy. Uh, yeah. you know, busy with both jobs and then busy week for gun <laughs> news, uh, which we're going to get into a little bit here because... We had the president make two pretty big announcements this week. He announced his new right. rule on so-called ghost guns. And he also uh, introduced his new nominee to be the head of the ATF. And you wrote a couple pieces about that, if you want to fill us in. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we, we mentioned this briefly with Cody, but <clears throat> uh, President Biden is now going back to that ATF well. He's, he's nominated another director. Uh, his name's Steve Dettelbuck. And hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. But he's uh, from Ohio. He was a former U.S. attorney there for uh, and he's a prosecutor for 20 years. And and then he ran for Ohio attorney general in 2018, uh, where he lost to the current attorney general, uh, Dave Yost. And uh, now he's he's been picked to be the next nominee to be the permanent head of the ATF. Yeah. Um and you know, there's some things in his past, I think, that you wrote about that might make this. Obviously, we covered the Chipman nomination extensively and how that became a massive political fight just based on some of the comments he'd made, uh, some history in his employment at the ATF, uh, his work for a gun control advocacy organization. Um, but we do see some other issues that you think maybe might come up with uh, Dettelbach as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a number of things, actually. But uh, you know, obviously, Chipman was very bombastic kind of guy, and he worked directly for the gun control groups. And he had a lot of, you know, he had some character issues, some accusations that came out about him that, you know, we we covered exclusively and, and extensively. But um, Dettelbach has has his own uh, uh, background that might make it difficult for him to get to that 50 vote threshold, starting with uh, that campaign that he ran in 2018. Um, he took a number of positions on gun control. Uh, he's for universal background checks. He was for an assault weapons ban uh, and uh, stricter red flag laws. So those three things are going to probably come up uh, a lot in the confirmation hearing that he's he's going to get. And, uh, you know, he was also backed by the gun control groups. He was endorsed by them, Everytown and Brady. And, and so, uh, you know, that's that's going to be a significant piece of the puzzle here, because obviously one of the biggest complaints about Chipman last time around was the fact that he worked for the gun control groups and uh, a number of senators, well, all of the Republican senators. And then, you know, I think there were four Democratic senators who didn't come out and and publicly say they would vote for him uh, with Angus King, who's technically an independent, but he caucuses with the Democrats being right. you know, widely cited as the person who specifically put his foot down to block the nomination but they were they one of the big complaints was that you know they don't they don't want a gun control activist in charge of the agency that regulates the gun industry they think it's they don't want to politicize that position 
And so you still have basically the same core issue here with Dettelbach and, uh, but he, you know, he, he didn't work for the gun control groups, but he wasn't endorsed by them and he does hold these positions. Um, and, and so it'll be interesting to see how that comes out. Sure. Uh, yeah, I think that's exactly right. As we've t talked about, and I'll have a, a forthcoming analysis piece on this as well about just sort of the timing on this and how once again, just the politics of gun gun policy in general will be elevated to the forefront in a big mm -hmm. confirmation fight. You've seen the, the Biden administration expend a lot of political capital over confirmation battles recently, not just Chipman, but there was the high profile defeat of Neera Tandon before Chipman. Yeah. Um, and then he had some a couple banking nominees that uh, went down for some controversial positions they had taken on regulation. Um, so it is a little bit interesting to see that another high profile fight that obviously it's gun policy, it's going to be pretty contentious and, and fairly divisive based on party uh, to see how that plays out uh, will be. Right. And the thing about that, too, is um, it's not clear to me that a lot of these moderate Democrats who had a problem with Chipman want to relitigate all of this again. Sure. You know, what I mean, like they could have nominated somebody like Marvin Richardson, who's the, the acting director, who's just a lifetime ATF guy, he never been involved in any politics. And he's actually fairly well liked by the industry. Um, but instead, they've decided to go uh, the more political route again. Now, obviously, he has a background as a prosecutor, just like, I mean, Chipman had a background as an ATF agent for, for decades. But the problem is that after those positions, both these guys went into highly political roles. Uh, you know, the Dettelbach ran for the attorney general and he endorsed these gun control positions. He was endorsed by gun control groups. And beyond that, we also have a piece uh, where we, you know, pointed out that he used a lot of heated rhetoric during that race, uh, specifically to question the integrity of elections. He, he repeatedly called Ohio's elections rigged um, over for multiple different reasons. You know, it wasn't just one issue that he thought made the election, elections fixed essentially in Ohio. And obviously uh, we've seen the outcome of that with January 6th, how, what that kind of rhetoric can lead to. And now certainly it didn't happen in this case. He didn't, sure. uh, there was no violent riot because of Dettelbeck's comments. But I think one of the interesting things to watch here in this confirmation hearing is a lot of the people who are going to be deciding whether or not to vote for him were directly affected by January 6th, the Capitol riot. They right. were there and experienced the worst case uh, outcome of this sort of rigged rhetoric, right? I mean, if you are telling people that the elections are, are fake, basically, that they're rigged, that they, they don't matter, uh, one of the things that can lead to, clearly, is violence. And right. so it, I think this sort of rhetoric has become much more taboo um, in, on Capitol Hill in the wake of, of that riot. And, you know, now there's partisan instincts to just sort of uh, wave away when people do this on in your own party. So we'll see which which of those factors plays out for these moderate Democratic senators. But it's certainly not going to help his nomination, I don't think. No, I, I think that's a, actually a great point. You know, it's, we've seen you, I think you mentioned in the piece as well, some other instances in the recent past where the sort of rigged election claim has come up pretty repeatedly, but there's no doubt that it's fully on uh, increased public scrutiny at this point, just in the wake of the, the 2020 presidential election. Um, so that does, I think, in addition to just uh, guns being a tough wedge issue for moderate Democrats, um, I think that will be an increased factor uh, leading to increased scrutiny. And as you said, you know, political opportunism may take over, but there's just no doubt that that's a, a big issue now, just the way things have played yeah. out the last few elections. I mean, look, it's one thing to complain about the districting process. Basically, every state's redistricting process is controversial right, every time right. it happens. Yeah. Um, or, uh, you know, the way that voter rolls are cleared of uh, of people who've moved or whatever. These, these were the issues that he was complaining about. But it's another thing to use this sort of rhetoric that he did, which is that basically calling into question all of Ohio's elections uh, because he didn't like the, the way these certain policies played. I mean, he, he 
was on the wrong side of the Supreme Court's decision in, in Ohio's uh, voter roll case uh, as in the, with with these comments as well. Uh, and then, of course, he he dropped them later. He didn't keep saying this, but sure. Uh, so you know, there's probably very much politically motivated claims, but sure. you know, it's just one of those things where it's this is not the kind of rhetoric that you need to go to if you have a disagreement over how you know state election laws are playing. I mean, this is very it very much reminds me of a lot of the claims that happened among uh, the more mainstream claims from Republicans about the 2020 election, which was to complain about COVID voting rules, right, which were new right. and, and unique. And a lot of people claim that that meant that the elections were rigged. Uh, that was sort of the more serious of the election, sto you know, stolen election claims that, that came up uh, in the wake of Trump's loss. But, uh, you know, it's just clearly not necessary and, and can lead to literal violence, <laughs> which, uh, which is why this is relevant, frankly. Um, and, you know, politics is a strong thing. It's it's hard to uh, over. It's hard to vote against your party's president on a nominee. But I mean, they already did it once with right. Chipman. And, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see what else comes out about Dettelbeck if he has more uh, stuff that's going to make his his confirmation harder or not, but um, you know that's something we're going to keep on top of for sure. Absolutely, um, you know. At the same time, you know, Dettelbach's obviously not as bombastic as Chipman. Doesn't have the same baggage because mm -hmm. he wasn't uh, working for a gun control advocacy organization. But you right. know, at the same time, since that nomination failed, we've only seen the polling get worse for Democrats and President Biden in this position where. Voters increasingly, you know, poll after poll that we've covered uh, oppose new gun laws. Um, they say they support Republicans in Congress over Democrats on the issue of gun policy. Uh, we had that recent poll about new gun owners um, that are mm -hmm. overwhelmingly and at times even uh, more opposed to gun control than previous gun owners. So I think the political environment has gotten only all the more tougher for Democrats trying to push through um, even a less controversial nomination that you know, still supports gun control. So it'll be interesting to see yeah. what the political capital they want to expend on this is, especially in those swing states ahead of the midterms. Right. Well, and, and one of the things I wrote about this week for uh, for members was the, the fact that the gun control groups, as we've covered extensively, have been pressuring the president to do this, uh, to do exactly this, to move up the ghost gun ban, ghost gun kit ban, and then to appoint a second nominee or nominate a second person to be ATF director. And, and it's paid off. Like they, they were publicly attacking him. I, I think both of us thought that was, uh, it was a, a kind of odd strategy, right. but it, it seems to have paid off. So, sure. you know, I really didn't think it would. And, and it did. Um, now, you know, obviously it's not, uh, likely to lead to the long-term goals that these groups have, you know, they're not going to, it's not going to lead to new legislation, but it, the president, did what they wanted. He caved. He he uh, uh, brought up a second nominee, um, uh, even when, <laughs> frankly, a lot of the complaints that the gun control groups had about his handling of, the, of Chipman was was weird from the outside looking in because, like, clearly, it wasn't uh, Biden who picked Chipman, or like you know, he he wasn't. It's not the, as though Biden had no connection to Chipman. As far right. as, you know, I'm, I'm, I know, I don't think he was like a close confidant or anything. It wasn't, it was much, it's much more likely that the gun control groups who literally employed him, like, you know, Giffords, he literally worked for Giffords, but he also worked for Bloomberg's uh, previous groups. And it's much more likely that they suggested he be the nominee, even knowing all of his uh, potential flaws or all this, the shortcomings that he had. You know, not everything was out there about him. Obviously, the, the accusations of uh, racial bias didn't come until after he was nominated. But um, a lot of the bigger sticking points were well known. You know, he, he worked for the gun control groups. He had all these controversial statements he'd made. Um, he did a poor job in the in the confirmation hearing. But like, it's weird to blame. If anyone's going to blame somebody for the political fallout of that, it would make more sense to me for Biden administration to blame the gun control groups, but sure. Uh, but apparently, the those tactics of going out and publicly trashing the administration—I mean, it, they paid off. And it's very different from how the gun rights groups handled President Trump, 
right? And, and frankly, uh, more successful, right? I mean, the, the gun right. rights groups were able to uh, block a couple of things that Trump wanted to do in terms of gun, new gun control or new gun restrictions, although not all of them. Obviously, the bump stock ban still happened. Uh, right. It probably happened in a way that was more preferable than legislation, but it still happened. And then they, they never got him, they never really pressured him successfully into doing anything uh, significant for them. They, they didn't, the ATF director that he nominated got shot down because he was, uh, the, the Republicans feared he wasn't uh, good enough on guns. Right. And he never nominated a second uh, pick. Uh, so he got, I mean, he was shut down by Republicans. So, um, you know, the strategy difference here is, is fascinating. And the fact that it paid off is interesting. And what'll be even more interesting is whether or not they get their other big ask, which is for, uh, basically a gun controls are right. You know, they want a cabinet level gun control, you know, policy person. Uh, cabinet adjacent, right? It's sort of like, um, if you remember from the Obama years, he did a lot of the czar uh, positions. Uh, you know, it's how much of an impact that has in, on policy is, is open to debate. But that's one thing that they really want. Uh, you've heard a number of these groups complain. Well, you've written about it. Uh, it was, yeah. Who were some of the groups? I think it was what March for Our Lives was one. Yeah. Some of the smaller groups like Guns Down America and March for Our Lives uh, were really hammering on this point, but it's starting to get mm -hmm. picked up um, as well by the bigger groups. And yeah. even some Democratic politicians, Senator Chris Murphy, I think, echoed right. the sentiment as well. So uh, it's starting to get picked up a little bit as well. It's funny that as soon as they, you know, del Biden delivers a big win for them uh, by renominating an ATF uh, nominee, and they once again are back to the same point like, okay, great. Now, you know, create the new yeah. cabinet position. <laughs> well, and why wouldn't they, right? I mean, sure. look, they were successful. It worked. You know, we sure. were skeptical that it would that it would have an impact for all the reasons we just talked about, but it did work. And so I don't see why you would necessarily let out. I mean, obviously they were praising him for doing this stuff. Uh, it's sure. not all negative all the time. It's just right. uh, that I don't see any disincentive for them to do it. It worked this time. Why not continue to push for him uh, to, to do the other things that you want that he can do, right? I mean, some of obviously a lot of things they want is are like stuff that he can't do, um, you know, like passing legislation. He's he's continually called for it. There just aren't the votes. Sure. They don't have 60 votes and they don't have 50 votes to break the filibuster uh, to nuke the filibuster completely. And so that stuff's out of the realm of possibility. But the thing, you know, they still have these other asks and I don't see why they wouldn't continue to publicly pressure him on it because it, it worked. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so that'll be the that's what people should keep in mind. Keep keep watching for is uh, will will President Biden give the gun control groups a gun control czar like they want right. um, a gun czar. And maybe, you know, at this point, uh, it's possible, especially if what if this nominee doesn't make it through right. uh, the ATF, you know, the confirmation, then. That's like one of the only things. If, if he can't get 50 votes again, I mean, that's this, this is really a risk for the president. Like, yeah, yeah, Dettelbach's probably a safer bet than than Chipman was. But again, the underlying basic problem is still there, which is that right. he's a gun control activist. I said you're still like asking gun control supporter. Yeah. Yeah. You're still asking Joe Manchin in West Virginia and John Tester in a state like Montana and Maggie Hassan in a state like New Hampshire to take a public vote on a candidate that's called for assault weapons bans and the like. So, yeah, the underlying yeah. problems are still there for sure. Yeah. And if he doesn't get through, I mean, that's, you know, the president's already dealing with really bad poll, uh, you know, polling for himself and, and it's it's an embarrassment anytime you can't get one of your nominees through when you only need votes from your party to do it. Right. So I, I think odds on favorite is that he can get through maybe with one or two Republican votes even at this point. That's that's like the base level I would I would think of uh, for for a nomination right now. But, uh, you know, uh, we'll see how he performs at the confirmation hearing. We'll see what other stories come out about him. Uh, and see if it doesn't fall below that 50 vote threshold. All right. We'll certainly be covering it. So 
Yeah, because it, it could be really bad for the president. So he's taking yeah. a risk, uh, and he's to to satisfy what the these groups want. I mean, I'm sure he sees it too as a more more of a fighting crime uh, sort of initiative yeah. here. These two things together. You know, obviously we look at them from a gun perspective, but I think the administration looks at it from both guns and crime. You know, there's there's a murder spike. You need. ATF director is part of federal law enforcement that deals with that. And, you know, ghost guns are the, the ATF claims are becoming a bigger problem in crime. And so, you know, these two things together are, are probably supposed to be a, a like a, a crime bill, a crime initiative, essentially. But um, but I don't know how if that's how voters or, or senators are going to look at this. Right. But well, yeah, we'll we'll keep everyone up to date. Uh, I think that's it for this episode. Um, if you if you want to help support our reporting, our journalism, you should head over to the reload.com right now and pick up a membership. You'll also get exclusive access to this uh, podcast a day early. And you'll also get dozens. I think we're at hundreds now, right? I think Probably so. Yeah. Of, member uh, exclusive pieces. Member exclusives. Yeah. Yeah. It was both both original reporting and analysis uh, of of the news that you literally cannot get anywhere else. And, um, you know, we really appreciate the support. It's been nearly a year now. Uh, April 19th is our one year anniversary. Uh, and so we're very excited about that. Uh, you guys have helped push us through uh, and, and helped us to break a lot of news stories that wouldn't have otherwise gotten any coverage. And so we're very proud of that. And we're very help, very thankful for the support we get from, from the members. So uh, head on over and check out our membership options today. And until next week, uh, have a good one. <laughs>